But it was really in college that God uh, got a hold of my heart, um, really bent me towards um, seeing Muslims um, and, and loving Muslims and, and wanting to bring the gospel to Muslims. And it was, uh, it was through a trip to India that I took. Uh, India is about 14, 15% Muslim, and there's a billion people there, so you, you, you're the public accountant. You can do the math. 100, 150,000 Muslims there. Um, <clears throat> and it was really there that God got a hold of my heart. And so when Dave uh, called me and asked and said, uh, hey, I'd love for you to be able to come here and talk about Islam, I said, hey, that sounds awesome. I love you guys here. Um, man, I'm just honored to be here. Uh, we, we led a fellowship group with Dave for about three years, Dave and Allie, and um, it was hard to see him go, but we, we just are excited about what's going on here in Sedaris. Um, we actually support this church each month out of our tithes and offerings as well. And we, we pray for you guys. So it's so fun to see all of your faces here right now because we've been praying for you. And it's so awesome that you're here and part of this mission up here. And so I'm just honored to be here today. Alrighty. Okay, so we're going to talk about Islam today, right? Um, in Islam on the surface, um, I've listened to some of the other sermons that Dave did in this series, but Islam on the surface might be perhaps one of the most um, confusing and misunderstood, maybe even feared religion of, um, out of all the, the worldviews that you guys have been kind of working through here one by one. Um, because here in the West, we always kind of knew that Islam was a thing, that, it was, that Islam was out there. Right, it was somewhere out there. Um, all the people who um, mined the oil and sent it to us—that was the religion that they practiced. Right, uh, that, that, that's Islam. Um, but it wasn't really until the 21st century, the events of 9/11 happened. Um, all of a sudden, the worldview of Islam was thrown into our face. Um, a lot of us are pretty young here, and so we really don't remember a time before 9-11. You know, we don't have memories of what the political relations were between the United States and the Middle East before 9-11. But that really was a big, crucial turning point with how the West really was forced to deal with Islam and what it, what it was and, and, and what it actually means. Um, the worldview that stretched from, from North Africa all the way to Indonesia, claiming almost everybody there, 1.5 billion people, um, could no longer be ignored after 9-11. Um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were soon to follow, and, and ultimately they showed, um, and they're still showing, how little we understand about the Islamic worldview. Um, Ultimately, these wars are going to be viewed as unsuccessful by future generations, or perhaps even by most people now they're viewed as unsuccessful. Um, and the ignorance of, of the Islamic worldview is actually um, primarily to blame here. <clears throat> um, the Arab Spring, maybe some of you guys have heard about the Arab Spring, that began in 2010. Um, and it brought to the surface a host of complexities that were present in the Arab world that really we weren't... Uh, really sure of what to do with them. Um, I bet we'd be hard-pressed, for example, right now to go around the room and see if someone could tell us um, the details and the reasons why the Arab Spring happened in just one of the 21 countries that experienced intense um, rioting and even upheaval, right? The Western world is really baffled by the Arab Spring. The Western world is really baffled by Islam. <clears throat> um, and currently ISIS, um, which is setting up a, a nation state like we've never seen before, um, we see that starting to spring up. And for some reason, Iran is asking the United States and the West to take care of it. But at the same time, they're supporting Hamas and Israel. How do all these pieces uh, work together? And why are some at odds with others? 
So really, the, the Islamic global landscape is, is pretty confusing, and it's okay to admit that. And to make matters worse, um, our media outlets that report on it have certain um, foreign policy agendas that they'd like to push. So even all of our perceptions of Islam are actually fairly divorced from the context and the settings that they took place in. So, so really what we have is, um, in America, the, the United States, uh, we have a population of people that aren't very versed on Islam, uh, why uh, things are happening that are happening and what it is. And, and so when Dave asked me to uh, take this opportunity to tell you guys, I was really excited because this is an area that um, all of us could just admit our, our complete ignorance in. Hey, we don't really know what's going on, and, and that's okay. And, and tonight I hope to give you a little bit of um, a little bit of foundation from which you can actually really spring forward and have a conversation with someone who may call themselves and, and, and maybe a, uh, a Muslim, all right? So hopefully after this, uh, after this talk, uh, Islam is a little less confusing. Um, hopefully after this talk, Islam uh, is even a little less scary um, to you, <clears throat> all right? And, and I hope it for this reason, because as our world continues to become um, more and more connected through increased transportation, increased uh, communication, uh, this is all uh, under a general topic called globalization. As our world continu continues to globalize and all the pieces start to touch each other a little bit more, um, it means that we're not only left with a host of foreign policy decisions we have to make, um, we're actually left with a host of people. We're actually left with a host of Muslims that are our neighbors, that are our shopkeepers, that are our coworkers, that are our bosses, all right? Um, there's 18 mosques in Seattle. There's 18 mosques in Seattle. Uh, there are 30,000 Muslims in the Seattle area. Um, this is a number that actually is soon gonna, gonna rise because uh, Ed Murray, your guys' mayor, is very, um, He's very lenient, and he's actually very embracing. He really wants to make it so Muslims can live in the city, and so he's starting to adopt elements of Sharia law into uh, the, the economic system here, that there's Sharia uh, aspects. One of the big ones that he's working on right now is um, lending. Uh, how, how can uh, banks lend to, uh, to Muslims uh, according to, sh to Sharia law? Um, and so the, the, I'm just saying that just because this means that one in 20 people in Seattle are Muslim. That's 5%. And this is a number that's actually going to rise because the policy decisions here that are being made are actually um, very attractive to Muslims. All right? And so for the considering community that Sedaris is, it's really important to understand Islam because if you haven't come into contact with it already, you will soon. All right? So, so um, if Islam is confusing and it's scary to you, that's okay. You're not alone, and I would say two things to you, okay? The first one is um, Islam is actually a fairly simple religion. It's a, it's a really easy thing to wrap your head around. It's not that complex at all. Um, a lot of the factions that we see on the TV of, of Islamic groups fighting other ones are, are really just um, wars fought over who should be leading uh, these Islamic nations, not necessarily differences in theology or ideology, all right? So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say um, is that many, many Muslims here in the West are currently looking for alternatives to their worldview of Islam. Um, 
And the gospel is poised to meet them right there where they're at with their questions and provide hope for them that they've been looking for, to provide um, really life, the life that they've been looking for, all right? So these two things, uh, one, Islam is simple, and two, uh, Western Muslims are, are very ready to hear the gospel. Um, is how we're actually going to structure this talk uh, this evening, all right? So first I'm going to go through Islam, really help you wrap your mind around it, and then we'll really talk about uh, how would I start a conversation with a, uh, a Muslim? How, how would I start that already? All right, so, so let's get into Islam. And so for me to tell you about Islam, I would start in a similar place that I start when people ask me um, to tell them about Christianity. I say, oh, oh man, if, if you really want to understand Christianity, what you have to do is you have to understand the person who founded Christianity. You have to understand Jesus. And you don't just need to understand him um, from a 20th century uh, perspective. You need to understand Jesus in his context. You need to see what he was trying to do in his context, in his time. You need to understand who Jesus was, who he was, and what he was trying to accomplish in his life, what he was trying to accomplish in his death, his resurrection. And so if we want to learn about Islam, we have to understand Muhammad. We need to get at his message in his context and get down underneath and really, really get some illumination on what he was trying to do with his life. Um, this is kind of difficult for us to do in the West. Um, back in the Dark Ages, um, it, Islam really took over the, the Middle East. They, they, they dominated Jerusalem and all of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Um, and this made uh, Christian medieval Europe really um, upset, and they put out a lot of anti-Islam um, propaganda that wasn't necessarily true. Um, Muhammad was commonly known as the devil, for hundreds of years in, in Europe. Like, they, he was commonly known as the devil himself. Okay? Every rumor of his life that made it to the West was actually twisted and used to paint a picture of a, a, a bloodthirsty conqueror that went from town to town, uh, forcing people to convert to Islam or slit their throat. Um, and, and so what is interesting, and I find this time and time again when I talk to people about Islam, is that that... Um, that ideology is actually subtly lurking in even our subconsciousness today. That even on some level, if we were to, if we were to say, uh, I think, say something about Muhammad, it would be something along the lines of, he was the guy who went around and forced conversions, and that's how he built his kingdom. Um, so maybe this is a notion that perhaps many of us have, but I'm going to go through Muhammad's life at like a 30,000-foot level so we can get through it quickly. Um, and, and so you can really see that that isn't entirely the case, okay? <clears throat> All right, so where are we going to start? Okay, birth. Obviously, here it is, birth. Muhammad was born in Mecca. This is in modern-day Syria, okay? Or, sorry, modern-day Saudi Arabia, um, his family was part of a clan that was focused on commerce throughout all the rest of the country. Okay, so they would go from city to city, and they would trade goods, and off of uh, trading certain goods in certain places, they would make a profit, because that place didn't have those goods, right? This is how um, the ancient uh, economy worked. It's how it even kind of works today still. Um, <clears throat> but before Muhammad was anything in life, he was an orphan, uh, Muhammad's father died several months before he was born. Uh, his mother died when he was about six. They both died of, of it just says fever. 
Uh, I guess they didn't have antibiotics back then. Um, but, so Muhammad actually was an orphan before he was anything else. And so what happened when Muhammad became an orphan in the society of his day is he was actually taken care of and absorbed into by his clan regardless. Because the clan system was one that was almost family system. There were several families as, that were a part of it, but they all threw their economic and all threw their future fates in together. And so Muhammad was absorbed by his clan and watched over by his clan. Not only his own family in that clan, but the rest of the clan as well. Um, fast forward 20 years, Muhammad continued to work in, in that traveling caravan that sold things, but he eventually found a successful and wealthy merchant in Mecca uh, and convinced her to marry him. Um, this is, uh, it, it, she was an older woman that was wealthy. Uh, she, had, she bore him four daughters and two sons. His two sons died in infancy. And um, he had grown into a tall and sturdy man, broad chest, large shoulders, eyes almost, almost black, just a touch of brown in them. And he had a, what people would always say about Muhammad is he had a great smile. He had a huge smile. And in fact, whenever he would laugh, he'd mostly just flash the huge smile. That's how Muhammad would laugh. I mean, he was the type of guy that was always doing something and never really rested. He was the achiever type. Um, in fact, when he walked down the road, it was often difficult for people to keep up with him because he walked so fast. Um, he didn't speak unnecessarily, but when he did talk, it was quickly, and it was to the point. Quickly and to the point. It was concise, but it was still sufficient so that he could get his meaning across. Um, he could be harsh with people, but overall, his demeanor wasn't that rough at all. He was actually known to be very gentle. When he was annoyed, he would simply turn to the side. And he was really fond of children. Perhaps it was the fact that his own um, two sons had died, but he actually ended up adopting a son. He ended up actually being really good, good friends uh, and really sweet with his child cousins that he had as he was growing up. And he loved his own grandchildren. Um, around the time Muhammad turned 40, around 610 AD, that is, um, something happened. Something happened to Muhammad. He claimed that he was receiving visions from God. Um, his wife's cousin was actually a Christian uh, whom Muhammad had talked with at length about monotheism. Um, and she heard this happening. Uh, she probably didn't have access to a Bible, but she heard of this happening and she probably encouraged him to continue, uh, continue seeking out this uh, communion with God that he had found. <clears throat> um, and so that's where his probably concepts of monotheism, monotheism came because in Arab culture of his day, there was no concept of monotheism at all. It was, it was all many, many gods to really help in different areas of commerce. And so whenever uh, Muhammad was in bouts of sadness or despair, he would go on these walks and, and find himself in, himself in caves where he would receive these visions, these revelations from God. <clears throat> What he did with those was he brought those back to Mecca and he would tell people about them. He eventually was uh, very winsome and persuasive like Dave of Anger up here and, and he got followers. He got followers. And what he and his followers would do is they would recite these, uh, these, these recitations is what they came to be called uh, from God, these revelations from God and they would memorize them. And, and here's what's interesting about Mecca during the time of Muhammad. It was in transition. It was in transition. 
Like I said earlier, it was, it was, there was previously a clan a culture that had pervaded it, that clans watched out for those in their clans, and Mecca was actually a combination of many clans. But with the increase of more and more commerce and more and more wealth into Saudi Arabia during this time, um, the clan structure was starting to break down altogether. People with power at the heads of the clans were actually starting to pursue wealth over providing for those in their care, often even at the very expense of the people in their own clan. And so after several years of revelation, the recitations started to take rebuke on these types of actions, rebuke against uh, rich people taking advantage of the poor. And this makes a lot of sense because after all, Muhammad had had the clan to thank for his very survival after his own parents had died. But this is what happens when you start to uh, critique and you start to rebuke people who are in power and who have a lot more wealth than you, is they start to persecute you. And so Muhammad started uh, experiencing persecution from these these wealthy clan heads who he was really speaking out against in, in really avenues of justice. And they were oppressing him economically. And then eventually um, they withdrew protection from him altogether. They said, Muhammad's clan, we're not going to protect it anymore. And so even his own clan had kicked him to the curb. And so Muhammad and all of his followers were in Mecca, a very dangerous, dangerous society, with no protection from anybody coming in and raiding them, from anybody coming in and hurting them in any way, shape, or form. All right, so, so without protection, Muhammad looked to nearby towns to secure, and he found a town which is a nine-day travel away called Medina. <clears throat> And Medina was a tumultuous place with lots and lots of crime. And they had heard about Muhammad and his revelations that he was having in Mecca. And somehow, through his, uh, his winsomeness, his persuasiveness, somehow Muhammad had actually convinced them of his prophethood, despite him not being in their town for a long time. They were most likely just looking for someone and something to resolve all of the tension and all of, all of the really the the war between clans that they were experiencing. And so they actually set him up as a person who was going to dispute between clans. Eventually, all of Medina adopted his message. So Muhammad went up there with 70 followers from Mecca, but then all of Medina eventually accepted his his message. And they probably did this because there was a ton of Jews in Medina as well. And so the the Arabs were were very, very open, uh, obviously, to to monotheistic concepts. Um, But primarily, they they, they saw Muhammad as someone who could unite the region with with his religion and could really bring peace and stability, stability to it again. And so remember, a significant part of his revelations governed how a society was to operate, how rich people couldn't take advantage of the poor. And so he actually fit into this role really, really nicely. Um, The the Jews still opposed him. Um, They said, no, you're actually not one of our prophets that we have here in, 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 that we have in the Old Testament. Um, But when, but Muhammad, he tried, to, he tried to please them. He said, you know what, hey, uh, my religion will worship on the same day that, you, that yours worships on. Started worshiping on Fridays. He said, hey, my religion will, will have the same diet that yours has. That's when he, he implemented kosher. Eventually turned to Hillel. <clears throat> and, and so, um, and so, even though he did these things, the Jews kicked him to the curb. He even prayed towards Jerusalem like they, like they were doing. But they, they never got on board with him. So eventually, um, he, he put the Jews aside. 
He used his power to kick them out of Medina because the Jews actually represented probably the only threat to someone um, really, uh, really pulling up the hood on what was going on and saying this guy actually isn't a prophet at all. Like he's saying to be in the line of our prophets because our prophets are like this. And so he kicked the Jews out <clears throat> and broke them all together. And then he started praying towards Mecca praying five times a day, situated towards Mecca. But he was a peacekeeper in a tumultuous town, and through his tact and brilliance, he eventually became the religious and political leader. The platforms were really intertwined here, okay? And, and so we have to understand something here. Um, for us, a religious body is a group of people that comes together to worship, like we're doing right now, um, and they come together to maybe do some other things on the side, maybe service projects or something like that. But for Muhammad, the religious community was a body of people associated with one another in the whole of their lives as a unified political entity, much like just a large family clan, one single political unit. Community and politics went hand in hand in ancient Arabia. Um, but at this point in Medina, it was Muhammad's goal to bring his political uh, slash religious influence to the town he was born in but exiled from, that Mecca again. Uh, and so he fought several skirmishes. He brought all, all the men from Medina and went down there and fought several skirmishes towards, uh, the, towards Mecca and with the men of Mecca. And even despite his small numbers compared to the much larger numbers in Mecca, he was able to, to be victorious he, he, he had some tactical brilliance to him, okay? Uh, eventually, he won over so many allegiances of, of the areas around Medina that he marched on Mecca with 10,000 men. And after virtually no fighting, the city surrendered to him. So this is what he did. He, he ruled here in Mecca for four years before his death. Uh, but before he died, he did in all of Arabia what he had done in Medina, he created peace between tribes. He, he, instead of all the tribes turning on each other and all the clans turning on each other and fighting, they actually were one big unified political unit moving forward. The question is, how did he do this? There actually aren't many recorded big wars that he fought. And this is because in the final decade of his life, Muhammad had the fortune of the waning Persian Empire. Um, the, waning, the, the Persian Empire was fighting wars up in Turkey against the Byzantine Empire. And, and the Byzantines had inflicted some serious losses on the Persian Empire, so much so that they actually couldn't support this grand empire that they had amassed. And Muhammad stepped into that power vacuum and went to tribes who were, were looking again for, to give their allegiance to someone so they could get protection from other tribes. Muhammad stepped into that power vacuum he most likely included them into his Islamic state without asking them to be Muslims at all, but either the attractiveness of his message or the economic pressures that he did put on people um, who didn't convert to Islam um, compelled them to accept Islam finally. And he eventually died of fever himself at 62 years old in the year about 632. But up until his death, he, he periodically re received those, re those relevation Re revelations, there it is, revelations, which he wrote down. And 20 years after his death, his, uh, his friends who were alive when, when he was alive, they took all of those revelations, they compiled them into a single document, the Quran. All right, so, so that's the life of Muhammad. 
the Quran, his revelations from God, uh, it forms the basis of the Islamic religion. It's viewed as the perfect speech of God himself. And so from it, we can answer all these worldview questions that Dave sent me that you guys were working through, okay? And remember I said that Islam is a very, a very, I won't say very, a fairly easy religion to understand. So we're going to move through these pretty quickly. Um, I have a couple disclaimers here before we do. Um, the Islamic world uh, can't really be represented in one big brushstroke. Um, that was something that was always true, but the Arab Spring punctuated for us. The Islamic world is very differentiated, much like the Christian world is very differentiated. There's a Liberal Christianity, conservative Christianity, there's a whole gamut here. Um, but what I'm going to be talking about here is, is really what we see in the Quran. It may be uh, more of the hardline side of Islam here that I, I represent tonight. But um, I, I, me and my wife, we have Islamic friends here in Denver, and uh, you talk to them about the craziness that's going on in the Arab world. You talk about, to them about the Taliban. You talk to them about ISIS. And they say, yeah, th that happens to people who get too much in, into the Quran. That's kind of how they phrase it. Uh, they're just getting too much into the Quran. So I'm actually going to represent uh, a faithful view here to the Quran uh, tonight. Another disclaimer I want to say is that we're going to be talking about the God of Islam and the God of Christianity and comparing them a little bit, and we're going to realize that they're night and day different. And this can get pretty confusing, so I'm going to use the Arab word Allah um, to denote the God uh, who sent the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the Christian God, okay? All right, you guys got it? We're going to move through these questions fairly quickly, but I think I'll say them because we don't have bulletins, right? So, so, so you don't get lost. All right, question one is... Um, what is ultimate reality? What is ultimate reality? Um, the ultimate reality of Islam is Allah. In fact, uh, Allah is, is the Arabic word for God, and Allah has many of the same traits that the Christian God has, all-powerful, all-knowing, merciful, good. But the parts about this uh, Allah that Islam emphasizes, that they bring up over everything else, um, that they would hold as the pinnacle of who God is, is his oneness and his transcendence. Oneness and transcendence. What are these things? Um, Muhammad was contending for monotheism in the context of his day where there is a multitude of gods that the Meccan culture worships. So the Quran, large parts of the Quran, are actually refutations of all these other gods. Oneness, oneness. In fact, the phrase that Muslims say all the time, perhaps you guys have heard it, Allahu Akbar, um, Typically, it's translated as God is great, but what it really most literally and faithfully translates to is God is the greatest. There's really this concept of that there's one God above everything else. Above everything else. There's such a strict understanding and adherence to this concept of oneness um, that the trinity of Christianity is seen as polytheistic nonsense. Uh, oneness, Allah is one, he cannot take other forms or else he would not be one. Okay, and that second thing uh, I highlight that they would bring to the top above all else is transcendence. This is a big, long word. Um, in Christianity, we have a, a similar notion. In Christianity, we would say that God is both um, imminent and he is transcendent. Perhaps, Dave, you've, you've preached on this before. You, you like big words. You like big words. He does. He loves them. Um, but what that means is uh, God is transcendent. It means that God is, is otherly. He's, other, he's apart from this world. He's holy. He's set apart. He is, he is apart from us, and he is not us. He's his own thing. He's above it all. 
imminence is really the fact that where Christianity, Christianity would say, hey, God, uh, God is with us, he is here, he is active in human affairs. And a, a Muslim would say, yeah, both of those things are true about Allah, um, but really he's more transcendent. They, they would point to his transcendent as, but you know what, he's so otherly and so outside here and so holy that we really can't um, come up to him and have a conversation with him. Uh, it deeply influences what a, a, a relationship with Allah would look like. So when you go to a Muslim and, and you want to talk about their relationship with uh, Allah, you, you may just be um, met with a blank stare. God, uh, Allah is often just something, uh, someone that we, we pray to five times a day. Uh, he's so transcendent, he's above us, he would not come down on our plane to converse with us. All right, so oneness and transcendence. Question two, what is the nature of the world around us? Um, Islam posits, much like the Christian faith, that the universe was created out of nothing. But differently than Christianity, it functions in a closed system. A closed system. What do I mean by that? Um, essentially, it means that there's, there's little to no free will. Uh, the worldview of Islam would suggest that nothing happens in this world outside of Allah decreeing it. Or uh, another way to say it is everything that does happens happens because Allah decreed it. Okay. Um, and this isn't just like big things. This isn't just like wars. This isn't people who are in power. This goes down right to the very minute details of what people do every day in life. Uh, this doctrine is called Qadr, which literally means power. Allah has the power to create everything, and because he is powerful, he continues to control everything as well. Nothing happens outside of his plan. Most Muslims take this to mean that Allah is the one that manages all events. If you plan a meeting with a Muslim, you say, hey, I'll see you then, they'll, they'll look back at you and they'll say, inshallah. And, and that, that really literally just means, if Allah wills it. And they're, they're not saying this as a lighthearted gesture or perhaps a joke. There's actually some sincerity there that's like, if Allah has decreed that I'll meet with you, then we'll see each other. Then I'll make it to that appointment. All right? And so this goes further than even most of, even all of the reformed Christian views of Christianity, of God's sovereignty. Everything happens by the decree of Allah because he is in control of everything. Question three, um, what is a human being? What is a human being? Um, to Islam, humans are the pinnacle of creation, just like in Christianity, created higher than the heavenly beings of of, of angels and, and jinn, uh, they're, they're called. There are other heavenly beings that were created. Um, and, uh, but this comes with great responsibility to live up to the standards that Allah has laid out. Um, Allah created them and put them in a garden and called all of the other created beings to worship them in the garden. One of them decides not to worship them. One of them is jealous that they are created higher than the angels. This one falls. This is, this is uh, the concept of of Satan in Islam. But they're in the garden and, and Allah commands them not to eat of a certain tree. Does that sound familiar? Um, actually, in the Quran, you actually have the same events from Adam to Abraham, roughly outlined uh, and going on. Adam to Abraham. This is probably due to a lot of the Jewish influence in, in Medina that, that, that Muhammad experienced there. But God creates them, he puts them in the, in the garden, tells them not to eat of the fruit, and they do. God comes looking for them 
Adam and his wife, she's not given a name, Adam and his wife uh, are penitent and God forgives. But, but, but here's the interesting part. There's no fall. Humanity is not stained with original sin moving forward, but maintains its purity. So humans are the highest created beings with a nature that's unaffected by a fall of any sorts, meaning that all humans are born into a state of innocence and purity. Most Muslims would say of any baby that comes into a world that they were born a Muslim. They were born with that initial purity. And they remain a Muslim until after they hit, pu- after they hit puberty, they decide not to follow, follow Muhammad. You see, uh, humans aren't necessarily sinful, right? This is very unique. And, and this leads us to the next question. What happens at a person's death then? Uh, and death is a transition from life to the next eternal life. At some day in the future that's not defined, uh, all of humanity will be raised and face interrogation by two angels, and those two angels will have an instrument that they will judge them with, and it's a book of all the deeds of their life, the good and the evil. They will all be examined, their beliefs, their attitudes, their actions. A judgment will then be made. If, If a person did not devote their life to the service of Allah and the teachings of Muhammad, their ultimate and eternal destination is going to be hell. And for those who were Muslim, they still have a reckoning as well. No one can be sure, no one can be sure that there's enough good deeds in their book to outweigh the evil. No one can be sure of that. So, and this is an exception to three, three people, um, three groups of people. One, um, people who uh, die before hitting puberty, um, the, the, they are viewed as not being responsible for their actions. So people who die before uh, hitting puberty, go to paradise. Uh, second, the, the mentally insane, they're likewise thought of not being able to be responsible for their actions. Um, and the third group of people who go straight to paradise are the people um, who die for the Muslim faith. Or they, they, uh, they're the martyrs, those who died for the Islamic faith. This is probably one of the reasons why Muhammad's armies were actually so successful and so courageous in light of uh, incredible number differences between them and their enemies. And it's, it really explains a lot of the, terror, the, the, the terrorist suicides that we see today. But for those who, do, uh, who don't fall in those categories, there's no assurance of going to paradise necessarily. Uh, question five, this is a question on uh, how, how, how do we know what we know? How is it possible to know anything at all through the Islamic faith? Um, Allah has given human beings rationality It's a gift given to humans that that enables them to discern truth from falsehood. So rationality is a gift from God to humans, and it finds its perfection in the Quran, and and the gift of the Quran. Notice that this rationality is not because humans are made in the image of Allah, like the Christian God, and therefore they're rational, like Allah is rational. Um, but humans have a rationality in order to live according to the standards of God. They, they, humans have rationality. They're given rationality from Allah in order to live by his standards, to decide what was true and what is false and how to live. All right, question six. How, how do we know what is right and what is wrong through the Islamic faith? Um, right and wrong are based uh, almost entirely solely on the teachings of the Quran and the subsequent interpretations that came afterwards. Uh, you see, the Quran had always functioned as, as a social document of sorts, right? It was always a social document. And so what's right and what's wrong is actually exemplified in the Quran. 
Remember, he was an orphan. He spent the majority of his life at the bottom of the society. He observed the systems of injustice, and so the Quran spoke to what was right and wrong a lot. <clears throat> and so the, these laws that were set forth in the Quran and through his rule in Medina and Mecca were brought all under together nowadays under a common heading, Sharia law. Uh, for Islam to be fully successful, it will have all the pieces of this Sharia law enforced, which is what we are seeing uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria do today. Um, and so in some sense, ISIS is actually the most faithful form of Islam to the Quran with regards to the Quran and Muhammad's original message. They even are carrying out the same penalties that are in the Quran. If someone's caught stealing, they cut off their hand, their right hand, okay? And so ultimately, this, this Sharia law actually incorporates um, all of life. It's very detailed. It touches everything, just like Torah touched everything for the Israelites. This is how right from wrong is determined. Um, perhaps you've uh, heard of the five pillars of Islam that a Muslim must do to get to paradise. Recite the confession. Pray five times a day. Uh, make a yearly donation of alms. Fast during Ramadan. And make a one-time uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, th these are the five things that they must do in order to get into, into paradise. Perhaps you've heard of it like that. But, but these really only scratch the surface of what a Muslim has to do to get to paradise. Through Sharia, the whole uh, Muslim life is actually strictly regulated into three types of actions. Um, actions that are commanded. Oh, I lost myself here. Actions that are commanded, actions that are permitted, and actions that are forbidden. So the entire Muslim life centers on the concept that eternal life is based on keeping these rules. When everything's riding on on one's actions. There's no guarantee of God, uh, God's grace. Avoiding the negative consequences of sin, avoiding hell is actually the primary motivator for the Muslim's life, for everything. Um, a lot of Christians live this way too. Actually, it's actually what makes the most sense to fall in humanity. It's what makes the most sense to my two-year-old, actually. You know, there's threat of punishment. My two-year-old obeys. Uh, <laughs> she does not joyfully obey. And that's the difference between uh, Muslim obedience and Christian obedience, although there are many, Christian, many Christians who actually function in that Muslim obedience of just fearing punishment, okay? <clears throat> question seven, what is the meaning of human history? We're almost done here, there's only eight questions, only. What is the meaning of human history? Um, human history is one big test to see who Allah wants to be in paradise. That's really what human history is. Um, but Islam has a goal for human history while it's here and happening as well. And that goal is to subsume the entire world under the Islamic community, under the Ummah, which in Muhammad's day was just as much political as it was relational and religious. It's a political entity. Uh, th these are what different congregations of mosques, they're all called Ummahs. Um, but uh, to Muhammad and really to a lot of the Islam faith, the, the Ummah is a very political force. Uh, political force. Uh, you see, Christianity doesn't have political influence built into it at all, actually. Um, Jesus of his day, we go to the Gospels, and it records several times that Jesus is actually pushing away any political influence. The Apostle Paul uh, talks about in, in the book of Romans how Christians aren't actually, uh, they don't necessarily need to be in positions of power and political influence, but they should pray for those who are as they wait for God's kingdom to be revealed by him. Okay? Islam, on the other hand, comes with the mandate to set up Islamic governments. 
And these Uma are independent nations with independent laws and rituals of their own, ideally Sharia. And so the, the, the goal of Islam within human history is nothing short of global, dom, do, global dominance. Question eight. What commitments are consistent with this worldview? Um, ultimately, uh, the Muslim sees that Allah had come to them and provided them the opportunity to enter paradise. I know that we've talked a lot about there's being no assurance, they're just beat down, but, but really that, that's a concept that we have. But really a Muslim sees the Quran and God, as really God coming to them and giving them a beautiful opportunity to enter paradise. They're grateful for this opportunity and will strive to follow the list of div- divine instructions even to the smallest area of life. So, so in, some, in some sense, they don't see living up to these divine standards as a, a burden, but as first and foremost, an opportunity. This opportunity includes with it the chance to be united to the political stability that Islam brings regions. At first, I mean, we, we, maybe we look at ISIS right now and say, that doesn't look like political stability to me, but that's right now because they're creating this order. Eventually, political stability will be there if they continue to grow and they stop expanding their borders. Um, say what you want about Iran, but inside of Iran, there's actually a lot of communal stability happening there. Islam really brings uh, stability to regions. That's what uh, Muhammad did to all of Arabia. Um, and so there's, there's commitment to this, um, to this political entity. Uh, that, that's also one of the commitments that's consistent with Islam, is commitment to the nation that it brings. <clears throat> um, this has been true for 1,400 years and will continue to be one of the driving forces of Islam, all right? Okay, so we got through all of them together. Are you guys with me still? Are you guys with me still? You guys are great. You guys are great. Okay, so that's what Islam is. Now let's talk about how in the West, that's here in America, um, Muslims are exceedingly ready to hear the gospel, okay? Um, first, there's intellectual reasons why they are ready um, there's, gro- there's actually a growing intellectual disfatis- dissatisfaction with Islam, and this is for a variety of reasons. First, there's actually a lot of transmission errors in the Quran. Um, as things are translated by hand uh, from one document to the other, words get misspelled, uh, words get misplaced, words get forgotten. These are, this is called textual criticism uh, to, the Christian, to Christianity. But one thing about, uh, about Islam is that they, the Quran was always her- heralded as a big miracle. Tradition states that Muhammad, he couldn't read or write. And so the fact that he had wrote these things down means that it must have just been the very power of God acting through him to do that. And part of the miracle of the Quran was that it was perfectly uh, passed down from generation to generation to generation. But now all of these other texts are coming out that have different words that that are here and there. I mean, this just happens. Uh, Christianity, if you want to look at the manuscripts of Christianity, these have always been there, but Christianity has always been really open about it. But Islam swept them under the rug, and now there's questions of, well, what, what else may be a lie here? Also, the, the Islamic world has several leaders in history that acted questionably, yet they were the leader. They were the caliph. They were the head of the Islamic state at points. And remember, Islam always has political dimensions. So, so when there's dissatisfaction with political leaders, questions follow of, is this religion actually real? 
because the political thing starts to fail and the political head isn't looking so great, there's actually questions of the underlying foundation below it. Uh, so today this looks like this. For Sunni Muslims, which is the majority of Muslims, how do they feel about the current caliphate of ISIS and the events taking place there? Mass murders, mass rapes. What does this tell them about their religion? These are questions that they're asking in their heads. And disillusionment is really sinking in. Um, second, there's an effectual disappointment in Islam. That is, uh, Muslims are becoming increasingly disappointed in the experience itself of Islam. D despite a Muslim's devotion and all the smallest details throughout all of their life, a Muslim doesn't have the assurance of that, that they will be permitted into paradise. Um, but if, if you ask a Muslim, say, hey, do you have assurance that you're going to be permitted into paradise? They'll look at you and they'll say something like, of course I do. And all I have to do is, is keep uh, in mind all of God's, uh, all, of, uh, all of Allah's commandments uh, throughout every second of my life. The condition disqualifies the first half of their statement there. Is it really possible for every second to be thought about Allah and his rules and regulation? Um, even the first two caliphs after Muhammad, on their deathbeds, they, they stated they were unsure that they were going to go into paradise. So these were the pinnacle of the Muslim experience, of the Muslim the world, the Islamic world, and they were unsure. Everybody is actually unsure. Um, but unfortunately, Muslims are increasingly insecure about this, obviously, um, but unable to express this insecurity in any way. And this is because doubt carries with it a public shame of sorts for the Muslim. In fact, uh, Muhammad had a solution for the person who doubts. He said, what you have to do, you're, you're doubting. What you have to do with your doubts is you have to go and you have to say the confession again. There's no God but God and his prophet, um, his prophet Muhammad. And you have to continue doing acts of obedience and try to please God. That's how you, that's essentially this translates to if you doubt, you're not trying hard enough. So to admit doubt is greatly looked down upon. It really testifies that you're not that great of a Muslim to your friends. Um, when I started doing evangelism to Muslims some years back on the CU Denver campus, um, I did something really stupid. Um, and I went up to a group of Muslims, and I asked them if they wanted to talk about Jesus. I was uh, immediately ridiculed and laughed at. Immediately. And this is because for a Muslim to even say that they had questions about Jesus to someone who's obviously putting forth some sort of evangelism of the gospel means that they might be a weak Muslim, that they're having doubts going on there. <clears throat> um, but in fact, many Muslims are looking for people they can ask these questions that are burning holes in their hearts. They have so many holes. You see, a Muslim won't admit that doubt in front of other Muslims, but when you sit down with them and ask them about Jesus, all of a sudden, things just start coming out of the, word work, uh, of the woodwork. And that only really happens when they're alone, unfortunately. Um, but this is where the, the Christian gospel is steps in, okay? You see, Christians, they have that assurance that they're going to be admitted into the kingdom of God when it comes back and, and Jesus reigns in full and this is because they have somewhere to point to um, that says their sins are forgiven. You see, Muslims don't have that. They just have this concept that, you know what, there's a whole bunch of bad things I do and a bunch of good things I do. And, you know, it, 
I keep saying that Allah is merciful, and maybe one day he'll be merciful towards me, but I don't have any evidence that God is actually a merciful God, that he's actually going to show me mercy, that he's actually going to take care of my sin. But for those of us who have faith in Jesus, we have the cross to look at. We have the cross to point to and say, no, that's where sin was dealt with for those who who would put faith in Jesus. Um, In the Bible, uh, it says that all the rulers of his day, the torturers, the the executioners, they were surprised with how fast Jesus died on the cross. And that's because he endured much more than human wrath, human torture. He experienced the divine wrath of God there on the cross for the sins of humanity who would put their faith in him. And it's this atonement of sin, it's this atonement that the Christian can point to and say, no matter what happens in my life, Jesus atoned for my sin. No matter that one sin, big sin I did, or no matter if I fall into something else in the future, Jesus paid for it. Jesus dealt with it. I have certainty of Jesus' words uh, that I will be united to him because God raised him from the dead three days later as a vindication and as an assurance that his message was true. Christians can stand and say the same thing the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus. That's a big statement. A lot of Christians actually still need to hear that statement before Muslims hear it. There is no condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus because sin has been dealt with. But for the Muslim, without the atonement of sins, all one has to hope for is God to be in a forgiving mood on Judgment Day. But this is something that only the Christian gospel guarantees. God's disposition towards those who put faith in him is acceptance and love. A Muslim has nothing to point to that proves their shortcomings have been forgiven. They can just cross their fingers and hope. But there is hope to convey this message to Muslims because Muslims are very, very, very curious about Jesus. You see, when you have a conversation with a Muslim, you, you don't want to approach them and start talking about Muhammad. You don't want to approach them and start talking about the worldview of Islam. It's good to have these understandings so you can start to piece them in places, but all you have to do is bring up Jesus. The Quran talks about Jesus five or six more times than Muhammad, and that's times as in the multiplication, not individual times. Jesus is brought up in the Quran a ton. He's actually heralded as a prophet. Um, It denies him being God and Trinitarian. But Muslims are intrigued by the fact that Jesus would endure this persecution and take it to the cross. This is what Muhammad did in Mecca, right? This is very uh, a very noble thing. It's a very uh, a very big validification of the message of the prophet who would take persecution and still go on. They're very intrigued in what Jesus' message actually was, and they're very intrigued by the fact that Jesus looked out for the poor, the desolate, the women. This is what Islam was very focused on as well. All right? So ultimately about Jesus, it's the easiest thing to do. It's really easy. You just go up and I say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? You may want to give them your name first. I don't know. It depends where they're at, right? You never know. But I've seen so many Muslims just light up and say, oh my gosh, I've had all these questions, but no one to ask them to. And so in a city here today where 1 in 20 people are Muslim, 1 in 20, and that ratio is probably going to get larger 
that ratio is probably going to get larger here in Seattle. It's a very diverse, diverse city. I was reminded of that as I flew in today. Much more diverse than Denver. But that, that number is going to get bigger and bigger. And what we need to do is we need to find that one out of the 20. We need to ask them if they have any questions. We need to be a community where they can come in and consider who Jesus is. Consider the claims of Jesus. Answer their questions that they have about Jesus. We don't need to do it while belittling Muhammad, who's actually a pretty great guy. We don't need to do it by belittling ISIS, pointing to ISIS and saying everything they're founded on is is bunk. We don't need to do it that way. They have questions. They just need people willing to enter into conversations with them. The harvest is great here, but the workers are few. Workers are few. But what if all of us had one Muslim friend, one Muslim friend who we talked about Jesus with? Some exciting things would begin to happen here. Um, For some of us, that seems like an complete impossibility. And that's okay. I get that. Um, I have this conversation a lot with people. And and this is what we do. And this is, it's crazy. What, What you need to do is you need to ask God to open your eyes. You need to ask God to open your eyes to where the Muslims are, to who they are in your midst, to where they are. And ask him to send you a Muslim friend. That's as easy as it is. Um, During this last uh, worship time here, we're going to have people in the back um, praying. uh, That'll be able to pray with you, to maybe even pray pray that prayer with you. God, I'd love to have a Muslim friend that wants to know more about you. Um, So they'll be back there during um, that time. All right. Well, I'm just going to pray for us here as we close down. Uh, It's so great to be here with you guys. Let me pray. God, I just... um, I thank you right now for the fact that you are with us. The fact that we don't need to ask you to be with us, but you are. That is such a great blessing. And we just ask that as uh, your presence is here, I ask that you would, you would work on our hearts, that you would work um, our hearts uh, really into uh, what your heart is. And you love Muslims. You love Muslims more than anything. You love Muslims despite the fact that that they would kill your followers. You still love them. We're so thankful that you sent Jesus to us who uh, have offended you equally, that have transgressed. And in our rebellions, you came to us and you loved us. Uh, So Lord, I just pray that you would give us your love right now, that you would give us the love uh, to look out to people who are um, rebellious towards you, that may even um, hurl insults upon us, God. And I just ask that we would love them Uh, dearly as you have loved us in our rebellion. Um, I just thank you for this church, this community uh, that is so welcome to discussions and conversations. And I just pray uh, that many, many uh, Muslims would be found here in this city uh, and that many, many conversations would be had here in this community with them. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.